All right, let's go ahead and do this. All right, let's go ahead and uh, open in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, you called us out of darkness into light. That For many of us here, you called us out of paganism, and you engrafted us into that great tree, the tree of your covenantal promises through your people Israel. And Father, we're asking the question today, where is our place in that, and have you been faithful to the nation of Israel? Uh, have you forgotten them? Uh, we thank you that you have not forgotten us or them, and we pray that you would show that to us through your word today. Pray that you would grant us a spirit of charity, a spirit of uh, coming under your word, and a spirit of wanting to learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I won the lottery. I got Romans 11. Um, but, uh, so, with, with that said, uh, you notice I gave you a whole bunch of handouts, and that's just to obfuscate you guys and keep you busy and confused <laughs> while I say whatever I say, and uh, no one's going to remember anything, and it'll be good, and I'll have succeeded. Um, actually not. Um, but this is a touchy subject, okay? Romans 11 necessarily jumps into lots of eschatological positions, and uh, for good or for bad, uh, people get excited about their eschatologies, some of us more so than others. Some of us less so than others. So some of us need to get a little bit more excited about our eschatology. Some of us need to maybe tone it down a bit. Uh, I'd probably be in the maybe needs to tone it down a bit category, perhaps. Um, but uh, let's look at this. It's a controversial passage. And it deals specifically with the idea of Israel's future. Is there a future for Israel? If there is a future for Israel, what does it look like? Okay. So our understanding of who or what Israel is in our passage is going to color our interpretation of the passage. The reference point that Paul's speaking of in terms of what time he's speaking about will also influence our interpretation. Now, of course, this passage also ties in with your eschatology in terms of your description of what the millennium is and what it'll look like. So we're going to, after reading the text, we're going to take a quick look at some basic eschatological positions. If you guys want to look at that in detail, uh, look online. Mark Anderson has, two or three times now he's done it, uh, a good little primer on eschatology, and he lays out the different positions, and I'd suggest you go there if you're interested in uh, more detail than I'm going to give today. But with that said, let's go ahead and look at our passage, Romans chapter 11, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll read the whole chapter. Actually, uh, I'm going to hit the end of chapter 10 of Romans that I missed last week. Um, Okay, starting in verse 18 of chapter 10. But ask, have they not heard, that is Israel? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to the, all the earth in their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Starting with chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. 
chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through the trespass, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in with their, olive, with their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they, may, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, um, before we jump in here, uh, I'm going to break down basically uh, views of your end time schemes, your eschatology. I'm going to break them down in two flavors, okay? Uh, and it's called chiliism. Uh, and so we're going to look at, uh, this is going to be, Pre-mill, historic, 
This is going to be dispensationalism of the premillennial dispensationalism. This will be on your chart. Uh, so these are the top two on your chart. Yeah, I'm not going to write. Uh, and then we have postmillennialism. Okay. I'm going to categorize these as chiliastic. Chiliism just refers to having a thousand year reign. Okay. These guys all believe in a literal, maybe not literal in this case, depends on which one you talk to, but most of them believe that there's a thousand year period, okay? Um, and then we're going to talk about the non-chiliastic view, which I'm going to argue for, which is amillennialism. Um, and this is non-chiliast, okay? Now, how that looks in terms of uh, the different views, I'm going to go through this real quick. It's probably not that edifying, but it'll help you in terms of identifying where the millennium is what the expectations are for Israel based on that view, okay? And let's be honest, I'm summarizing four views, three of which I've held. Um, I'm, I'm not going to get exhaustive. And to be honest, I've forgotten a lot of what I used to know about this stuff. So if you're like, that's not my view perfect, um, it's not my intention to explain it in all details. So we're going to start with the pre-mill view, okay? Historic pre-mill. So in this case, the church age is represented after the resurrection of Christ until the return of Christ. So we're going to... I guess I could move this over a little bit. But um, after the return of Christ, there's going to be a thousand... Whoopsie. So here we go. Um, what am I putting with this? Yeah, this is the millennium. Sorry. So Christ will return. There will be a thousand-year reign. And then the last day will come. So th these are going to represent the last day. Well, I don't know what that is. So here's the last day. But there will be a thousand-year earthly reign with Christ on earth. Okay, That's the historic pre-mill position. And for them, of course... A revival of national Israel will happen, probably early on in the millennium or right when it begins, okay? There's going to be a revival of national Israel. Jewish people in Palestine are going to come to faith, okay? Moving on to the dispensational position, okay? Dispensational position shares a lot in common, but for these guys, there's a big difference. I'm putting this in the wrong place. So here's Christ's... Uh, you know, secret rapture, you know, in this, in this case you have three resurrections, but um, there's a secret rapture of the church, here's the last day. During this time, um, what's to be expected for the premillennial dispensational folks is um, that all Israel will be saved, national Israel, and not only is national Israel going to be saved, but the temple is going to be reconstructed. I don't know, that's temple, okay? Temple's reconstructed, um, that there's going to be actual sacrifices of animals, okay? So if you're familiar with Roman Catholic theology and how during their Mass they have a sacrifice, well, these guys are going to have old sacrifices pointing towards what Christ did, supposedly, um, and it's sort of a memorial position, okay? Um, so this age of grace ends with secret rapture here. Uh, yeah. Kingdom of God is here. During this millennium, the nation of Israel will be jump-started along with the Old Testament temple, worship and sacrifice to commemorate the sacrifice of Christ, the Jews will be converted. Now, this is the interesting thing that I've got to read. Uh, the Jews are going to be converted at this time merely at the sight of Christ ruling in Palestine. They're going to see their Redeemer, and this time around, they're going to be like, wow, I need to believe in the Messiah. Okay? Um, so it's at the sight of Christ. Okay? At the sight of Christ, they repent and believe. Now, let's make it clear. It is through faith in Christ. But, the means whereby they come there is by the sight of the Savior. Um, next view, post-millennial. Okay? Now, the post-mill and the amill share a lot in common in some ways in that 
uh, it's simple. There's a last day, and there's the preaching of the gospel, and there's no secret raptures or anything like that. But for the post-mill, these guys are going to believe that at some point in time, and this depends on who you talk to, um, the preaching of the gospel is just going to be successful, right? You read the books they, they publish, you know, Eschatology of Victory. Victory is the big theme, right? Dominion is the big theme, that the crown rights of Jesus are going to be pressed forth and people increasingly more and more are going to name the name of the Savior and cultures are going to be transformed. And so with this one, we see this ramp or this wedge. Things are always getting better, okay? And some post-millennial folks actually believe in a literal 1,000-year period. Others, like the Amil, believe that it's the church age for whatever that is, okay? Um, now, all of these believe in some sort of 1,000-year reign. Uh, with these guys, of which I'm one, um, we don't argue that there's any literal thousand-year period. We argue that the period from the resurrection of Christ until the second coming is the millennium. That is the time when Satan is bound, when the church is preaching Christ crucified, and we're gathering up the elect from the four corners of the earth. Okay, um, That's sort of some eschatological positions in a nutshell. Now, for the future of Israel, though, is the question. On, on this position, what's the future of Israel? Oh, with these guys also. Um, so there's a, a revival of Israel. Okay, With these guys, there's a revival of Israel. All of these guys, when you look at Romans 11.26, when it says, all Israel will be saved, all of them necessarily uh, are saying that national Israel will be saved. Okay, Whether it's a remnant or whether it's in total, for the most part, they try to get as close as you can is meaning all with all, right? Every single individual as much as possible. Yeah, there's going to be some exceptions. But for the most part, all of them are arguing for a thousand year period. Early on, there's a revival of national Israel, okay? Um, now, with this view, we're going to see that there's basically these same concerns. What's the deal with Israel? And there's different views within amillennialism uh, in terms of, you know, basic options. So the first option we'll look at... Um, is held by uh, John Calvin. Um, for the sake of time, I won't read a quote. Take my word for it. I'll give you guys some stuff later if you're interested. Um, Calvin argues that Israel basically equals the church. Okay? So, Israel's church. That's Calvin's basic argument. Um, uh, today I'm going to be largely following the work of uh, C. Lee Irons. He basically takes Calvin's position and flushes it out a bit. Um, another position taken in this camp um, is that all Israel equals national Israel that comes to faith. So let's see here. Our options are one, all Israel equals church. Two, all Israel equals elect Israel, okay? Um, and that's held by people like, uh, you know, Dunn, was it James J.G. did? I don't remember. New perspective guy. Um, Kim Riddlebarger uh, held that position. I learned amillennialism from Kim, and I've uh, went back and forth from holding his position. My guess is that Kim holds this position because it largely, Kim did his Ph.D. on uh, Warfield and Big wonder, you get influenced by people you study a lot. So uh, he, he holds out that national Israel will be saved, but only the elect. Okay. Um, and then the third view, and that's what I'm going to be arguing for. Uh, I'm sorry, I already told you I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for this one. 
the third view is basically this one. Uh, all Israel equals all elect from Israel during interadvental period. That is, from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming, all of those that can trace their heritage and their lineage to Father Abraham, physically, literally, all those that are of Israel that come to faith, that's what Paul means by that. Okay? So, and maybe the, for the sake of position two is that national Israel, the elect in national Israel come to faith. Okay. Um, now, those are the three basic positions. This position is held by uh, um, uh, Herman Ritterboss, O. Palmer Robertson, Robinson, and uh, Robert Strimple. Um, so, uh, you know, to be honest, as I was studying this, guys, uh, this is some heavy stuff. And my Greek skills are, one, they were never that great. Two, they really suck now. Um, so I'm, I'm largely dependent on, and, and for the record, um, you know, many men that I've learned from, that I, that I know well, that I have great respect for, hold these positions, okay? So, you know, Lee Irons argues for this position uh, in terms of, whatever, you know, in, in terms of boasts about who's close to the Greek. Uh, you know, th these guys, you know, uh, Robert Strimple always impressed me. One of my systematic theology professors, um, his classes were hard. Um, but the guy would always be there poring over the Greek New Testament before class. And this is like 30 years on in his tenure. And he'd be like asking him, I write about this. Uh, I don't have that kind of pluck. Um, I'm like, I did that work. I'm going to use it. Uh, that's So my point is, these are difficult subjects and... Uh, two things to say. I could be wrong, okay? Uh, I actually changed my view while doing this study. Um, but on the other hand, this isn't something that we should take the approach of, you know, I'm a pan-millennialist, I'm just going to throw up my hands. And there, There's something to be said for that, in that you entrust yourself to the Lord and His plan, and you're along for the ride. That's good. That's where we all need to be. But there's also the question of, we need to be able to say what God has said, Okay? And these are practical issues. So, here's my cards on the table. Uh, I'm an amillennialist. I better read what I said. Uh, I'm an amill guy. This is where I'm at. Uh, and I'm going to be arguing for the thesis that all Israel equals the church. I'm going to be trying to hash out uh, Calvin's general uh, sentiment at that point. So, my basic thesis today is this. Romans 11 is not about the millennium. It's not about the millennium, any specific conception of the millennium on these terms, okay? It's not about the millennium, and it's not about Israel's future, okay? Well, let me rephrase that. It's not about the millennium, and Israel's future is the church. Specifically, Romans 11 is not a pre-written history of end times events. Paul has literally redefined the term Israel to refer to the New Testament church by arguing that God's irrevocable promises to Israel are fulfilled by means of salvation of both Jew and Gentile in the church age. I probably should have printed the thesis out for you. All right.
Well, having said that, um, let me just share a couple things. And it's important to consider a couple things. First, there are undoubtedly people in this room that don't hold my view. Okay? And I'm fully aware of that. So I had a couple choices here. Uh, I could have tried to hide my position and try my best to represent everybody's position as faithfully and honorably as I could and ultimately probably fail. Okay? Um, and I kind of did that. And I probably ultimately probably did fail. Okay? If, if you're a diehard on any of those positions, you're like, well, that's insufficient. Um, so instead, this is what I've done. I've decided to argue for my position with the time that I have because I think that it accounts for the biblical data most consistently in terms of both the broader redemptive historical themes and the argument that Paul has going throughout the book of Romans in particular. When I started studying, I thought I'd be defending the idea that the elect within Israel would be saved. Okay? I thought I'd be arguing for that position. Um, but things change in terms of how I saw this passage, and they might change for you. The second thing I want us to consider before beginning is that this is an issue of things that are indifferent, okay? traditionally called adiaphora, things that are indifferent, things that are not essential for you to make a faithful profession of faith before the church. Okay? Uh, you know, when Jesus is quizzing people, who, who do you say the Son of Man is? Uh, you know, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, Good for you, the Father has revealed this to you, Jesus says. Uh, Jesus doesn't sit there and, what is your millennium perspective, Peter? Um, so my, my point is, is that faith can be simple, but at the same time, you're supposed to grow in your faith. Um, now, in another thing that needs to be said is in our church, in the Presbyterian Church of America, for you to be a member, there are no prerequisites for your millennial position. Okay, I've never seen the elders at Spring Meadows go, Whoa, you're a premillennialist? Hold the phone. We're not going to commune with you. Okay? Really, I mean, that's, and that's, that's like an issue, right? Uh, also, if you wanted to pursue ministry within the PCA, if you wanted to be a deacon or an elder or a pastor, um, we don't have any formal requirements. Um, now, personally, I think, and I'll show you some reasons why this view is probably, to use John Cleese's words, right out. But um, th there, there's probably, you know, um, with that said, I'm sure that in the PCA there are people that are ordained that probably are dispensational. Would that be? Have you ever seen such a creature, Pastor? I have not. You've. Okay. My apologies. Last, so. Last Presbytery meeting I went to, somebody asked the candidate, "What do you think of dispensationalism?" He said, "I hate it." That's all they have. <laughs> <laughs> this would be an interesting study, right? I'm, I'm thinking there's got to be an elder or somebody in the PCA has to that. But um, anyhow, I think you know. Last time we were together, when we looked at uh, what benefits do, do believers receive at the resurrection, if you look at that, I think confessionally, dispensationalism is a no-go from the confession's perspective. Um, all right, where was I? Some, and the reason why I bring this up is in some denominations, uh, that really is an issue. Uh, my first Reformed pastor, he was, a, uh, he was a minister in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he went to Westminster Seminary on the East Coast. And after he graduated, the, the, his goal, the reason why the Christian Missionary Alliance sent him to Westminster is because it was academically inclined and all that stuff. So he graduates, and he's going to go teach their missionary school in Nyack. And when he said that he wasn't down with their interpretation of Revelation 20, they quickly showed him the door. You, you can't teach that all-millennial stuff, right? And, and he's, he ended up being post-mill, but I think he was kind of all-mill at the time. 
Um, so the point is, we don't have those kinds of prerequisites for ministry in the PCA, probably with the exception of this. Okay, so that's saying, hey, uh, this isn't intended to exclude you. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that the point of this passage today is to include you uh, and include everybody. So those are some of the concerns I want to get out of the way. Uh, before we jump into this, we're going to go ahead and look really quick at some more broad concerns. This is the bad thing about biblical theological preaching and teaching is you're always like, when's he going to get to the point? And then you wonder if he made the point. And hopefully there's going to be a point at the end where you're like, I get it. And if not, oh well. Um, so check this out. Uh, we we lack, last week looked at what we called Klein's submarine, okay? And uh, I just want to go over some essential features here that we see about the one covenant of grace. Last week we did mention that there was a works principle in Eden, there's a works principle in Israel, but in this case the works principle uh, actually would have worked if people were perfect. In this case it's a type of what heaven is like and it's showing us that we can't keep the law. Okay? But what we do see is that when we see Abraham, wherever he is here, um, it says of Abraham that justification comes by faith, right? Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. And last week, I hope we remember that we saw that this one covenant of grace is consistent from, you know, the proto-euangelion, the early preaching of the gospel, until the second coming. That is how people get saved. That's non-negotiable. Even though the law exists in Israel, it has a specific purpose and function and goal that we looked at. When we looked at 10.4, we said that, Christ, that you know, uh, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. And we were saying that that end is the telos or the goal. Um, so this is the way people get saved. And we see that from Genesis 15.6. And that's static. Okay? But what we do see in Israel is that we see this, this typology, this picture of heaven to come. Right? There's this intrusion of heaven showing the world what heaven is like in Israel's law, in Israel's sacrifices, etc. But the Israelites, again reject God, right? And we've already seen that with uh, exiles. Um, but finally, they get to the point where they reject the Savior, right? Before Jesus goes to the cross, he tells the Jews, he says, I tell you, your house is left to you empty, okay? That is, your temple will be devoid, right? And why is that? Well, because they reject the true temple. Jesus says in John 2, destroy this temple, three days later I will rise, raise it, you know, and I mean, you know, of course, we know the passage tells us in John 2, of course, the temple he was speaking of was his body, right? Well, this curse happens, okay? Their temple is left empty. When Jesus dies, what happens to the temple curtain? It's torn in two, right? And there's two basic interpretations there. One is it opens up access for us to God, right? Y'all you, come on in, right? Um, and the other one, of course, is no, God's presence has left, Okay? I'm a fan of the latter one, okay? God's presence is left. And of course, we are welcome to come to God. Um, so the temple is empty. And then, of course, to further our argument, in AD 70, literally, Roman soldiers come and destroy the place, okay? So what I'm arguing for is that Old Testament Israel, as a type and a shadow of the kingdom to come, is done at this point, okay? Temple's empty. Temple's destroyed, okay? Uh, and my argument is going to be that we should not expect a jump start of the temple and its cultists, its worship, its sacrifices, etc. We should not expect that in a future age. Okay? And why is that? Well, 
Funny you ask, because pastor's actually preaching on this right now. Imagine this. You're a Hebrew Christian. You've accepted Christ. You trust in the Savior. But you keep wanting to go back to this old-fashioned form of worship, right? The types and shadows, which is exactly what Hebrews is about. How does it sound for after Paul, after whoever wrote Hebrews, writes Hebrews. No, no, I don't think it's Paul. I just slipped. Um, after the author of Hebrews writes Hebrews, do you, th you know, hey, uh, I don't know, 2,400 years later, let's say, restart, you know, break out your erasers, erase that stuff from the book of Hebrews in some sense, because we're going to go ahead and restart that, okay? It's just odd, redemptive historically speaking, to see that a rose that unflowers and comes out to full bloom is then sucks back down to half of its initial glory. Uh, so that, that's another reason why I think you should find that view incompatible. All right. Another issue here is uh, what is the temple, right? Um, when we look in passages like 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about you as being part of the temple, right? 1 Corinthians 6 talks about you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Peter talks about you are a living stone being built up into a cosmic temple, okay? So for the temple in the New Testament, we're going to see, that's a person, um, we're going to see that uh, we are part of the temple, Christ is our head, and we are his body, okay? Individually and corporately, we're his body. So we shouldn't look forward to an earthly temple ever again, okay? Now, based on what we've seen really quick through this uh little sweep of redemptive history, um, I just want to remind you that all of God's people, all the way from Abraham to anybody up until the second coming, whether Jew or Gentile, they're saved by faith in Christ through the preached word. We didn't get to that last week, but you know, it's through the preached word. Uh, if there's any national conversion of Israel, if any of these are true, national conversions of Israel, this is non-negotiable regardless of your viewpoint. If there's any idea of national Israel receiving salvation, it's only by faith in God the Son, the second item, and what earlier we saw is the stumbling block. Because, of course, Jesus is the stumbling block. Coming to him and trusting someone else for your righteousness is the stumbling block. Okay, So regardless of your viewpoint, to keep you safe, that's something you've got to confess. It's only through the Redeemer that people get saved. Now this idea, uh, just a, just a, another time to beat up on the dispensationalists, I guess. The idea that worship will go backwards rather than forwards is preposterous. Shall Israel go from shadow to reality to shadow for old time's sakes? So again, uh, I would encourage you to consider that viewpoint if you're there, that, uh, maybe it's not consistent with where redemptive history is going. Next we're gonna look at the pattern of Romans, okay? So what is it like in the book of Romans? What argument has Paul been building up? Okay. Um, and we're going to look at 2.28. Uh, Romans 2.28. And so some things that we're going to see from Romans. Uh, is one, in Romans 2, Paul's making the argument that not all Jews are Jews. Okay. As you read through the book of Romans, you know, you see in Paul's argument that, uh, you know, our chapter one, Gentiles are sinners under the wrath of God, need to repent and come to faith. 
Chapter 2, Jews are sinners under the wrath of God. Need to repent and fit, come God and repent in faith. Whoops, if I left any crumbs on the table and there's anything left over and I missed anybody, oh, they too need to repent and come to the Lord Jesus by faith, you know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, etc. So um, what we're going to see here is uh, not all Jews are Jews, okay? So he says, uh, you know, 2.28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, religious observances, circumcision, etc. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. Hmm. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, shorthand, circumcision does not equal salvation. Okay? Those who have their hearts circumcised, however, are saved. Even if they are Gentiles, is where Paul's going to go with this. So Paul here has redefined circumcision. He's redefined circumcision in such a way that he's going to tell us not all Jews are Jews. Oh, you're boasting because you have the law, etc. Yeah, how about you keep it? It's those who keep the law that will be justified, hypothetically, and of course, true. Problem is, ain't nobody can do it, right? So here we go. Next argument Paul makes is Romans 9.6. And his basic argument is going to be not all Israel is Israel. Okay, this is Romans 9, 6, but it's not as though the word of God had failed, has failed, sorry. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So we look at, you know, Ishmael and Esau, these, these guys are, you know, Big deals in Israel's heritage, in the sense, but uh, they're big deals because they can trace, hey, I'm a Jew. I have this heritage. Abraham was my father or great-grandfather or whatever. Okay, But even though they're from Abraham's lineage, they're rejected. They're not children of the promise. So just as Paul has redefined circumcision in chapter 2, he redefines Israel in verse 6. Not all Israel are Israel. And so Paul's point is that there's no golden ticket. There's no safety in labels. You can't point to your ancestry and say, I'm safe. You can't just rest in your identity in a group and be secure. The truth is, and we're going to see this again and again and again throughout redemptive history, is that the remnant is the reality. Okay, The remnant is the reality. Cain and Abel. Abel's elect. Cain's a killer. Even though Eve thought that he's going to be the redeemer, not so, he's a killer. Okay, uh, Jacob and Esau, Okay, both are kind of dirty creatures, but Jacob's elect, Esau's not. Elijah, an apostate Israel. Daniel, an apostate Israel. And the invisible and the invisible church. In all of these cases, the distinguishing factor is faith. Okay, The distinguishing factor for God's people is always going back to this promise, right? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's true of everybody, Israel or Gentile, Israelite or Gentile. Okay. Now let's look at Romans 11. Now as we test this thesis that Paul has no future national conversion for Israel in mind, uh, it's important that we consider his tense of his language. As, as you look at the passage, uh, you're not going to find any futuristic language. You're not going to find any future verbs. Okay? 
Check this out, 11.1. Paul asks a question. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now, oh, I erased it. But if we took one of the chiliastic views, premillennialism in its two forms or postmillennialism, is it possible that Paul would say, well, of course God's not going to go ahead and uh, abandon or reject his people. God's going to push start the old jalopy of the theocracy back to life in the millennium. That was a little biased. But God is, in the millennium, God's going to not forget about his people. He's going to care for them, right? But that's not what the text says. The text doesn't point to some future millennial uh, God saving of the Israelites, God saving of national Israel. He points to a decidedly present situation. He says, by no means. And what's his example? Me. Here. Now. I'm an Israelite. God hasn't abandoned us. I'm Jewish. Oh, by the way, Peter, the other apostles, they're kind of Jewish. Oh, by the way, there's Jewish churches too. Oh, yeah, and there's this issue with these guys that, that the book of Hebrews is written for. Yeah, they we're kind of reminding them about that stuff that God has a future for you, and we're working on it right now. We're preaching Christ crucified as the fulfillment of all this stuff, and you just don't see it. And you just don't see it. So it's a present situation. Paul doesn't point to the future. By no means, for I myself, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, case in point, Paul. Robertson says here, uh, Paul identifies himself as current proof that God's purposes for Israel are being realized in the present era. Since Paul is an Israelite and saved, God has not rejected Israel. Let's look at Romans 11.5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, verses 1 and 5 together, anchor verses 1 through 10, to seal the deal that in those verses, anyhow, there's no way he's talking about anything besides a present means of God dealing with his people. Okay? So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And, you know, hey, we've seen that the remnant is like a thing throughout all redemptive history. Okay? The remnant is a thing throughout all redemptive history. And so the question that the positions that I have up here, the chiliastic positions, is when does the concept of ref when does the concept of remnant give way to this concept of fullness? And do they even mean fullness when they say it? Um, all right. Which the same questions can be asked of me. This is 1314. Uh, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So we get the idea that, you know, it's through, you know, uh, the gospel is the righteousness of God's salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. But the beauty is that the gospel comes to the Gentiles because the Jews chucked the faith. They didn't share the faith with Father Abraham. They got all mixed up in the theocracy and thought it was that the type was the reality. And they're like, whoa, don't give me the reality. I want the type. The type's great. Uh, the gospel comes to the Jews because of that, uh, the Gentiles because of that. Okay, sorry, I'm kind of hurrying. Um, so when Paul says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, I'm a, an apostle to you guys. I magnify my ministry in order to make the Jews... Here I am with Gentile ministry. I want to get these guys that still think that way. I want to get them in the kingdom. What is Paul doing? He is presently trying to address the issue that God has not abandoned his people. Okay, God has not abandoned his people. And 
That's what my whole ministry is about, okay? Even though I am preaching the gospel of the Gentiles, I use every opportunity I can to attract my own flesh and blood to the faith. He's preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he's doing that in the presence. Lee Iron says of verse 30 through 32, he says, verses 30 through 32, and I'll read those real quick. Uh, verses 30 through 32, this is at the end of the chapter. Uh, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, speaking of Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, that is the Jews, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Note the now, 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 now present in there. Okay. Um, but also this word all is what we're going to have to look at in a second. Lee says this in verse 30 through 32. Verses 30 through 32 reiterate that the entire chapter is oriented not toward a future hope, but a present expectation. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson says, Paul's emphasis on the present responsiveness of Israel continues to be his central concern. Now, some of you would say, well, what about verse 25 and 26? Doesn't, can't we get our future hope for a national or elect Israel in there in verse 26? And that's what most people do. It is a possibility, okay? It is a possibility that it could be uh, Paul's concern for Israel is both a present and a future one. But, Possibility does not equal necessity, okay? And I don't think that it's necessary or even intended. My position, again, is that all Israel, that is the church, all Israel equals the church, and that is the church under age, the Mosaic economy, and the church put together, okay? Jews and Gentiles as believers. Now, one of the objections to my view is that when you look at verse 25 and 26, and let's go there for a second, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, in my view, undoubtedly, when we talk about a partial hardening has come upon Israel, the way I'm using Israel in these two verses, verse 25 and 26, has a different flavor. Okay, And so one of the objections to my view is that it would seem odd for Paul to use Israel in a different sense within the space of two verses. Hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. We've seen Paul already, however, be totally cool with using terms in different ways. Okay? This is nothing new. He's established the principle. Okay? But Paul's, and this is what we'll close on today. Um, Paul uses the word all in Romans, okay? And the way he uses all, I submit to you that when you see all in Romans, just test yourself as you read through the book of Romans. Does all carry the flavor of Jew and Gentile? Okay? Go home this afternoon, read through the book of, book of Romans. When you see all, doesn't it usually carry the freight of Jew and Gentile? So Paul's use of all in Romans is such that it should make us automatically think Jews and Gentiles. Now here's Dunn, who doesn't share my, my position, but he's far better with the Greek than me. He says this, the pos, or the all in Greek, so insistent a feature of Paul's expression of the gospel, all includes both parties, that is Jew and Gentile. So for some examples, uh, 
Romans 3. Can someone go to Romans 3, 9? Uh, someone go to Romans 1, 5 and 1, 16. I'll go to 2, 9 and 10. Okay. Whoever gets wherever you get, go ahead. What then? Are we Jews Bethany buried off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are, are, are under the power of sin. Okay, someone else have a different passage? Okay. Um. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to Okay. Test that thesis as you, as you go through there, okay? Um. And I'll close with this before I have some practical comments. Um, N.T. Wright, uh, commenting on Romans, says this. Paul actually began the whole section, starting with 9.6, with a programmatic distinction of two Israels. And throughout the letter, chapter 2, verses 25 to 29, as well as elsewhere, he has systematically transferred the privileges and attributes of Israel to the Messiah and his people. It's therefore greatly preferable to take all Israel, in verse 26, as a typically Pauline, polemical, or argumentative redefinition, as in Galatians 6.16, which, you know, identifies Israel with the church, if you buy into my view. And in line also with Philippians 3.2, where the church is described as the circumcision. Um, now, regardless of where you are, and if you just thought today was, oh, whatever, okay, I heard Dan talk about his crazy amillennialism, that's fine. Um, when we look at such issues as this, uh, all of us have weak spots, okay? When we look at millennial positions, all of us have weak spots. If you're premillennialist, you're very likely to interpret your Bible, and I'm going to be rude to everybody here. I'll be an equal opportunity offender. If you're a premillennialist, especially if you're a dispensationalist, you're interpreting your Bible with the newspaper next to each other, and you're letting them bleed into each other. So you're making your sitzim laban or your moment of interpretation that influences your thoughts be the news. Okay? If you're a post-millennialist, you do the same thing, but instead you're looking at, uh, oh, who is he? Uh, early historian, he's famous, Josephus. Okay? You're doing the same thing. Okay? If you're an amillennialist, this is what amillennialists do, and this is what I was doing, feeling guilty. We look at the the recent news with, oh, I don't know, the Holocaust, right? Hey, if, 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 what is the Holocaust besides the hatred of Jews? And so lots of amillennial folks, they're like, wow, I can't be amill anymore. God forbid, because I didn't have a high enough view of God's people. I, I need to ramp up on my, you know, those who bless Israel will be blessed, that kind of stuff. Um, guys, I would submit to you all of those. I guess what I'm saying is, when it comes down to these issues, remember that Scripture is sufficient, okay? Whether you're pre-mill, post-mill, or ah-mill, Scripture is sufficient, okay? And th this is interesting. I mean, lots of guys at the turn of the 20th century were post-mill, okay? And after a couple of world wars, they backed off of that. Now, that may, personally, I'm not post-mill. I think Amelian's right. But don't change your view because of what you read in the newspaper, 
Okay? Ask the question, is Scripture sufficient? Is Scripture sufficient? Is it everything that we need for life and doctrine? Or do I need to... It's always an ever-present temptation when interpreting the Bible. I'm going to look at the culture. I'm going to look at the history. I'm going to look at this, that, or the other, uh, which might have nothing to do with it. Now, it's not to say that, uh, you know, good grammatical, historical interpretation of the Bible, you need to, you need to know your history about what was going on then. But uh, don't let your history become your theology, okay? Don't let your uh, newspaper reading become your theology, uh, now, I know that if you happen to be of a pre- or a post-millennial perspective, what I just said sounds an awful lot like what would be characterized as replacement theology. You're just saying that the church replaces Israel, right? Uh, you're, you're a, you know, a, I forget what they call it. Uh, but uh, let me ask, in seed form, is not the gospel always intended for everybody? Okay? It always is. Okay? That's why we have Rahab. That's why you go through the accounts of uh, you know, the genealogies of Jesus. You have all of these non-Jews incorporated into the people of God. And that becomes fully more flowered. And yeah, That was a lot to say in a short time. But uh, let's close in prayer and I'll avoid your questions. <laughs> no, if you've got exactly questions, I'll answer Lord, we give thanks that you have not left your people, but Father, you have engrafted other people into that group. And you've called us, regardless of what we think about Israel in the future, etc., to preach the gospel to every creature. And laziness in thinking that, oh, these people are abandoned, look at what they did with Jesus, is right out. Remind us, Father, that it is only through repentance and faith in Christ, the true Israel, that we come into your kingdom and help us to be zealots for preaching him and him crucified, that men and women, boys and girls from every tongue, tribe, and nation, yes, even national Israel, would come to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.